can be hard to keep track of Jesus's miracles because he does so many and they're all impressive. Uh, One of the things that often happens in our mind is they sort of get blended into one and we don't always pay attention to the significance of any particular miracle. Today in John's Gospel, however, uh, John, the Gospel writer, pays particular attention to this this miracle that Jesus uh, performs because John chooses uh, to tell us that this is the first of the miracles that Jesus did. I'd like to spend some time today looking at this first of the miracles. Why is it that Jesus begins his ministry career of miracles here with this sign in Galilee, and why does it continue to have a lot of importance for us today? So here's the first. As you listen to this story and you heard of the events that are going on, I wonder if you asked yourself, um, why is it that this is something that Jesus would choose to begin his miracle career with? I mean, after all, it doesn't seem like anything that's terribly significant. When you look at what's going on here, what's happened? Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding at a village. You don't know exactly where Cana of Galilee is. Scholars dispute it. There's a few places that were known as Cana, or were called Cana during the time of Jesus, and several of them are candidates for what this would be. But none of them had any really big significance. This would have been probably a village or small town, and Typically, of course, in a small town or village at the time, you'd perform a wedding, and so uh, the whole town would be involved. You'd have a big deal, because this would be something that the whole town would celebrate, and you'd have several days of feasting and drinking. And so, as it turns out, they've been feasting and drinking an awful lot, because their wine has run out. And of course, there, you didn't have an LCBO. You could just pull up, grab some wine, and move on. You're in a village, then you have to go and travel somewhere else to get wine, and Particularly if uh, your money is run out, it just makes it a very difficult time. So Jesus' mother is embarrassed for this couple, uh, for this family that's putting on the wedding a banquet and asks Jesus to do something. My question, whenever I would read this passage, especially years ago when I first started hearing it is, so what? I mean, Jesus, after all, seems to have a pretty good answer. His mom comes and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus kind of says, so what? Right? What's it got to do with me, woman? Uh, and uh, so Jesus initially seems not to want to do anything. But then what does his mother do? Here's what's really interesting about this passage, and the first thing I wanted to draw attention to, is that his mother then says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone jars, and then Jesus turns the water into wine, and we know the rest of the story. Isn't it interesting that his mother, when Jesus seems to say, this doesn't seem all that important, instead of her saying, well, I guess you're right, Jesus, and goes back and sits down, She just goes to the steward and says, whatever he chooses to do, go with it. I really like this passage because one of the things it tells us is just the simple fact about Jesus' character and about Mary's as well. Here we find Jesus looking at this group of people and realizing that in the big scheme of things, the wine running out isn't that huge of a deal. He's going to go on to some much greater things after this. He feeds 5,000 people. We find later in John's Gospel, he, of course, supremely raises Lazarus from the dead. These are awesome things that truly seem to proclaim the greatness of our Lord. But when Jesus looks at this, which seems initially insignificant, but his mother turns to him and says, this family will be hugely embarrassed, and the joy that everyone's experiencing will peter out as people go back to their daily lives. Jesus answers her by reaching out and fixing the situation. And Mary, when she turns to Jesus and initially doesn't get the answer she wants, what does she do? She comes back and she says, whatever he says and whatever he does, I'll go with it. I find that such an encouraging thing because for much of our lives, if we're really honest, the things we're praying about, if we really look at ourselves, we realize, well, 
probably not that big of a deal in the great scheme of things. I think Jesus is pretty occupied trying to bring peace to the Middle East. That's pretty important. I'm looking at the church persecuted in Pakistan or in Egypt or in China. That's pretty important. I look at uh, some of the turmoil politically in the United States or uh, you look at the big mess that's happening in the UK with Brexit and people don't know which way to go and you think that's a big deal. Or even in our own lives, I mean, I'll go and visit somebody who's in the hospital and that's a pretty big deal. But what does most of my prayer life really consist of? Help me not lose temper with my daughter this morning when she's finding it hard to go to school. Help me to not be petty uh, with my wife. Help me to be understanding when somebody's done something wrong. Help me to forgive myself when I've messed something up. So often the things that we ask of Jesus are not huge in the big scheme of things, and we convince ourselves that after all, why would he really care? And especially when we don't immediately get the answer we think we want. What does Mary do? Mary doesn't get the answer she initially wants, but what did she say? Whatever you do, Jesus, is going to be fine with me. How wonderful a statement that is and an example of faith, and how wonderful it is that it highlights Jesus' concern even for the simple fact of a family's embarrassment and Jesus wanting to help them over this little hump. Remember from this story that your little concerns matter to Jesus. And remember from this story that what Jesus asks of you is not, Jesus, here's my list of demands, but simply, Jesus, this is important to me. But I'm going to trust that whatever you do, whatever you choose to respond to me with, is the right thing. And I wait to see you do the right thing. Look at what a great thing Jesus did. Here's the second thing I find really interesting about this passage. And it made me think of it in these terms because of something uh, I heard. The founder of a community called the Bose, I think it's the Bose Monastic Community in Italy. Sort of like Teze in that it's an ecumenical monastic community. Uh, but he was giving a talk about the Eucharist and about, uh, about the significance of, of, of the sacrament. And this little phrase really stuck out for me. He was talking about the sacrament and he said, um, bread for the need and wine for the grace. And he went on to say that bread fills our belly. It's a fundamental human need to have bread. Bread fills our bellies, but wine gladdens our hearts. What we find expressed in the sacrament of the Eucharist is the bread that expresses God's desire to feed us with the core elements needed for human life, but also for things over and above, abundant that brings joy to our hearts, even if at the moment it doesn't seem necessary. One of the things that's really striking about this story is how over-the-top and unnecessary Jesus' actions are. Fine, Jesus, maybe you think, well, okay, he wants to help them over this embarrassment, so why not take one jar, which has 20 or 30 gallons of wine, that seems like that would be enough, and maybe take that wine and make it, you know, pretty decent wine, but he knows very well that after you've had a few wines, you're not noticing that this is a great vintage year. In fact, the steward, when he receives this, uh, remember, six jars of 20 to 30 gallons, that means at least 120 gallons of wine. And this is what the chief steward says when he tastes that wine. Everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus, when asked to help over this small, insignificant-looking problem, takes the basic building block of life, water, the most basic core need we have. We cannot survive without water. And he takes this core basic human need and in the context of a joyful wedding where love is being celebrated, not only brings wine, he brings an overabundance of fantastic, strong, robust wine that impresses the steward with its elegance and luxury. That's one of the things that's amazing about this story is to say Jesus again says, you know, man does not live by bread alone. 
He says that in rebuke to the devil when the devil tempts him to turn uh, stones into bread, but he also is doing that to quote the Old Testament. That when we look at life, what do we find truly is joyful and gives hope to the soul is more than just our sustenance and our basic human need. It is the grace that God pours out and gladdens our heart. It's one of the messages that's really important for our culture today, as it's always been throughout the ages, but particularly for us because we have this weird kind of split personality that goes on in our culture. On the one side, of course, in our culture, people are celebrating productivity, right? Whenever we talk about economics, it's always, how is our nation's productivity? What's our gross domestic product or GDP? Or what's the uh, percentage of, of, of uh, unemployment? And, and one of the things that's really important to people is how productive you are. And of course, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the people who really lean in and they give their whole lives to the company. And these are the people as we have celebrated. And we, of course, celebrate people who, uh, in their spare time, use it productively. You know, they really work out hard or they really devote themselves to one cause or another or people who are doing things uh, that are really highly focused and productive. It's interesting to me that there's been such an explosion in these sort of extreme sports. You hear of how many people running triathlons or doing those tough mutter races or Spartan races and things, and we celebrate this. But on the other side, of course, what do we celebrate? Slackerdom. We celebrate sitting in front of the television and binging on Netflix shows or uh, watching those cooking shows and then uh, binging on, you know, uh, expensive treats and those sorts of things. You go in uh, to Loblaws and, of course, yes, you can get your lowbrow sausage rolls, but then you can go and get in the frozen food section the fancy pants stuff that you saw uh, done in all those food shows. So we have on the one side slacker, totally unproductive stuff that does nothing for the soul, and then you know, on the other side, you have hyper-productivity. Now, of course, those are things that in themselves aren't wrong. I mean, I think it's good to get exercise. It's good to be productive. And sometimes you just need to vegetate, right? Do you know one of the things our culture doesn't do very well? It doesn't really prioritize the things that bring lasting joy and gladness to the soul. And how wonderful it is even today. Look at the blizzard out there, right? If you go home today and you sit in front of your front window and look out for a little while, at the quiet street and the wind blowing. There's no productive value in sitting there watching it. But my gosh, it's amazing. I, as I've told you, I have a, I have a doggy now, right? And so I certainly do not want to go out when it's minus 20 and, and the snow is blowing around. But you take that doggy out for an unproductive walk. I'm not counting my steps. I'm not checking my pulse. I'm not seeing how many miles I'm doing. I'm just out for a stroll with my doggy. And I'm looking at the beauty of this world. And what is it that I'm getting? I'm getting a gladness of the soul that says there is a creator who even in the midst of a terrible, powerful storm has chosen to, to, to wrap this world in beauty. Think about the times instead of watching Netflix, you do what? You sit down with your daughters and you play Battleship. How boring, how unproductive, how much that doesn't vegetate, how much it doesn't make you productive, but in this, at the same time, what does it do? It builds a relationship that has depth and power. These are things that last. What is Jesus doing when he pours out such an abundance of wine? And, and why is it that Jesus keeps using the analogy of the wedding feast when he talks about his relationship to his church? Yes, there's lots of ways he talks about the church needing to serve Christ as its disciple. But he also talks about the bridegroom and the bride coming to be united in a wedding and celebrating with, with rich foods, with, with well-aged wine strained clear, not with bread and water alone, but instead points to the abundant 
grace and joy and wonder of knowing Christ. We get glimpses of this when we have a happy wedding and we have good wine. We get glimpses of this when we look out at the beauty of creation. We get glimpses of this when those times with our friends, we simply just enjoy having a coffee together, or as we we did at our men's brew day yesterday, just having good conversations where you're doing things together. These are things that give us a glimpse of the abundant grace that is waiting for us at Christ's return. Christ is not a a meager God who who does nothing except simply make our our, our necessities be met, but instead is an overabundant God who loves us so much that he wants not only our necessities, but wants our joy. Here's a passage that reminds us not only of the goodness of our Lord, but reminds us to pause, step back, and just ask yourself, not just am I doing something productive, not just am I vegetating, but am I doing things regularly in my life? that allow me to glimpse the abundant, loving grace of my God? And do I take those times seriously or let them be pushed away whenever anything else that seems too important takes over? Spend time with real Sabbath-taking in daily life and in weekly life to take those times that are truly joyful. But here's the last thing that I'll say, and this is the one that's more of a theological point, but at the same time is deeply, deeply important. Do you notice what it is that Jesus takes when he takes the water and turns it into wine and where it's stored? John gives us a little glimpse of what it is that Jesus is transforming. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now we may pass over that because we think, wow, the wow factor is the water into wine, but John lets us know these are stone jars which if you're a a person who's studied a little bit about uh, the Old Testament, you'll know stone jars are used for a very specific purpose. Stone cannot be contaminated by uh, ritual uncleanness. What that means is that it's, we don't have time to go into all the details, but in the Old Testament, there's lots of ways in which you could become ritually unclean, which means you can't go to the temple to worship God. So for example, if you touch a dead body, Uh, you become ritually unclean for a certain period of time. Or uh, you may have become unclean because you touched an unclean animal. You know, if you had a a piece of bacon on the table and you accidentally touched it, what that would mean is, is that it would create a separation and you had to go through rites of purification, washing, and a certain amount of time before you could be considered clean. And what was even more so is is that if you touch something like a, a pottery jar, that pottery jar would become unclean. You'd have to smash it and get a new one. But stone jars, not. You could rub bacon all over a stone jar and it wouldn't impurify it. So Jewish homes, faithful Jewish homes, would keep stone jars to do that very thing, to, to give people the chance to wash with water that was ritually clean. And you'd do that before meals in case anything accidentally happened uh, where you accidentally became unclean. And why is that significant that we're told this? And why is it significant that Jesus says specifically that this water needs to be turned into wine? I think one of the things it does as the first of Jesus' miracles is it points to what Jesus' ministry is about. That unlike the effort we have to undergo in order to become clean, it's the power and grace of Jesus that cleanses us from impurity and sin. Right before this chapter, we have found Jesus described by John the Baptist Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And right after this, John tells us, here's the first miracle of Jesus taking away the old rite of purification and changing it so that he becomes the rite of purification. Now that's maybe seeming like that's far, far away from us. I mean, after all, that just seems like a weird system to us. The way the Old Testament operated is quite different. 
But I also think that we sometimes forget how often shame plays a very similar role to that ritual impurity that used to be present in Old Testament times. I'll just give you an example of what I mean. There was a man, uh, his name was Jeffrey Corbett, and he was found, unfortunately, in a car in New York City, uh, dead, and he had committed suicide. They found him, uh, I think it was last year, but here's why I mention that. Jeffrey Corbett became famous because, a few years earlier, he was uh, at a McDonald's, and the woman uh, at the McDonald's who was serving him gave him the wrong order, and he got really angry, and he threw the hamburger at her and stormed out. And she was sympathetic as a person. She was making minimum wage. She was pregnant. And somebody, of course, as it always is, has a cell phone. They've got a cell phone, and they show it, and they upload it on YouTube, and millions of people uh, saying what a terrible person he was. Now, obviously, a terrible thing to do. It did not treat this woman with dignity, clearly. Do you know what happened? When a million people say, this is a terrible person, this person should uh, be ashamed of himself, and a million people say it, what happens when you want to go get a job? This man was undergoing a divorce during the time and had recently been let go of work. Not an excuse, but a man under the worst circumstances, showing the worst side of himself, picked up on YouTube, and now an entire mob goes after the man. He can't get a job because every time he applies, somebody Googles him, and what do they get? A million hits saying this is a terrible person. And so after years of being unemployed, years of, 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 of feeling like the whole world despises him and he can't get the shame off of him, he kills himself. And sadly, that's happened many times. There are unfortunately many people in the world who, when they see another person doing something wrong, feel like they have to join with the mob to say it, even if it is legitimately wrong. And even if that person were to apologize to that woman, that shame sticks with him. Thankfully, uh, I've never been shamed publicly on the internet. But of course, we often feel that shame just even amongst our little group, right? We do something dumb. Maybe we say something ridiculous, or maybe we make a bad choice, or maybe uh, we find ourselves compromised because on a bad day, we say something that we instantly regret. And it seems to stick with us. I think many of us go day by day, even if we don't articulate it, we go with this internal sense of shame, whether it's because people unfairly criticize us or maybe because we've legitimately done something wrong and the forgiveness that we hear about doesn't seem to really translate into a life lived with real freedom. I think a passage like this at the very start of Jesus' ministry says that is not what Jesus' ministry is about. It is not about letting people stew in their shame until they make it up. He said Jesus came, and, and he came not just to forgive our sins so that technically we won't be judged. He came so that we might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to take those who are wrapped up in shame and to say, I will take your shame from you. One of the aspects of the cross that we often have not focused on in the way that we should is how shameful it was. How these people were legitimately shamed throughout the entire process. When Jesus is whipped and they put that crown of thorns on his head and give him this reed, these are all things that aren't meant to cause pain so much as to cause mocking and shame. Look at this shameful, terrible creature that you call your king. And, of course, we see in art Jesus has a tasteful loincloth, not the way it is. You would be crucified naked in front of the entire group of people in front of Jerusalem so that everybody passing by can spit at you. And we're told, of course, that how uh, the soldiers right at the foot of the cross, or tossing dice to get Jesus' clothes. How sorrowful it is and how shameful a scene, and we look at that because he says that is the same way we feel when we are shamed, and Jesus came so that he can take it upon himself. 
came not that we'd be shamed, that we'd be made free. Yes, we need his grace to overcome patterns and things we've done wrong. But he didn't come so that we can live with constant shame. This passage shows us that one of the greatest things Jesus did or came to do was to lift off the shame and that sense of impurity we carry in ourselves. Look at the story and remember, Jesus came to take those waters that we fruitlessly try to wash ourselves with and change it into his, by his grace into something that takes shame and turns it into joy. So why do we celebrate this? And why did John say very clearly and make us want to know this is the first of Jesus' miracles because it says so much about who Jesus is? He's somebody who cares about the daily needs, even if they're small. He's also somebody who's a God of great abundance who wants us to have true joy and live for something more than just bread. And finally, he's someone who came to free us from our shame so that we might lift our heads high even if we don't deserve it because we don't have to deserve it. Jesus deserves it, and by his grace, he gives us his glory and takes away our shame.